morning. It has been, I was looking this morning, when I was thinking about preaching this morning, and I thought, gosh, it has been forever since I have been up here. And I looked, and it has been over three months. Last time I spoke was the first week, first Sunday of June. It has been such a crazy, busy summer with so much travel and so much going on. I've missed it, but also like, wow, where did the summer go? <laughs> so it's good to be up here again. Um, so you see our slide there. We are still in our Hungry and Thirsty series, but this is our last week. This is our, our last day talking about spiritual hunger and thirst. And in this series, what we have been trying to do is cultivate a spiritual hunger, a longing for the things of God, and looking at some of the examples in Scripture of, of Jesus fulfilling those desires and blessing those desires and what that looks like um, when we are hungry and thirsty for the things of God. And today we're going to wrap up this series by looking at, and I can't believe no one did this before me. I was like, man, I got like a low-hanging fruit one. This feels good. Um, but looking at how Jesus himself ate meals with people uh, when he was on earth, the way that he related to people, the way that he invited to pe people, the way that he accepted invitations, and how he showed up in these instances. Um, if, you wanna, if you have your Bibles and you want to get those out, we've got a good bit of scripture that we're going to look at today. It'll all be on the screen, but you know, it's always great for you guys to, to look in your own Bibles and kind of see what's before and after in context. And um, I just feel like if you're, you know, that kind of learner, um, this could really help. So there's this phrase that Jesus uses for himself a lot actually, like dozens and dozens of times in scripture throughout the gospels. Um, and this term is son of man. So this term, you know, well, he says things like the son of man um, has authority to forgive sins or, you know, when he's trying to explain, you know, when he's healing the guy and um, he's like, what's easier, right? To, to heal him or to say your sins are forgiven. So, but so that you know, the son of man has authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. Or he says things like the son of man has no place to lay his head. And so he uses this phrase of a lot, and it's kind of this weird, like, Jesus talking about himself in the third person kind of thing. Um, it's a little unusual. Um, but he does this a lot to describe himself, to describe his circumstances, um, to describe his, his ministry. And Son of Man, this literally just means, basically, human being. It's just a person. Like, person with flesh on, a human. But it comes from, mostly, uh, Daniel chapter 7. And so that's the first place we're going to go if you want to start flipping in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. And that's where we're going to get a little more context about what this Son of Man title is all about, what it actually means. So in Daniel 7, obviously this is, this is Daniel's book, the prophet. He is in exile in Babylon. And one night he has this crazy prophetic dream or like a vision somewhere uh, in between this dream and a vision. And there's all this wild stuff happening. Like there's these four huge beasts that are just terrible and terrifying and look like this, these mixtures of these animals. And there's this one that has all these horns and this other horn comes up. Um, and it's this super prophetic uh, vision that he has. And so these beasts are causing all sorts of destruction and they're, they're, bad rulers they're they're doing things um in a very oppressive kind of way so we're going to first read together in daniel 7 verses 9 through 14 and it says this as i looked thrones were set in place 
and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. His, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Does anybody else, like, when you read these really prophetic passages, do you, like, hear them in the voice of Johnny Cash? Just me? Like, when the man comes to town. That's just what I, okay, maybe it's just me, right? The virgins are trimming their wicks. Anyway, all right. Um, Go listen to (laughs) Carrying on. Sorry, aside, distraction. Um, Now I'm going to have a hard time not saying it in a Johnny Cash voice. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. This is the horn on, on one of these four beasts. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So being on this side of like that, you know, B-C-A-D time split kind of thing and and having the, the full canon of scripture, it's probably a little easier for us to pick out what these different things in this vision are, right? Maybe more so than it was for Daniel, because Daniel had to go and ask this other being, presumably an angel, well, what does this all mean? You know, but, but we can see like we have the ancient of days. We have God the Father being seated on his throne in glory and splendor and power. And then we have this one who is like a son of man, like a human. One in this vision that comes before the ancient of days like a human. And so when Jesus refers to himself in this way, it, you know, again, a bit unusual because it's like a third person kind of thing, but it's a very intentional choice that he chooses this phrase and this title to refer to himself over and over and over, something like 80 times in the Gospels that he does this. Now, there's something we need to understand. Jews of Jesus' day would have clearly gotten two things from this, this Daniel passage where he's having this vision of one like the Son of Man. First, they would have understood this is their Messiah. This is the Savior, in this, this son of man that's in, this, in Daniel's vision, this is the Savior coming before God himself, ushered into his kingdom. He is from God, he is of God, the Ancient of Days, and he is the Messiah. He's welcome into God's presence and given authority and a kingdom that will never pass away. So this is very messianic stuff, and the Jews would have totally been right on with that. The second thing that they would have understood from this passage and and called to their minds when Jesus is using this phrase is that they would have understood that they are looking for a person, a human, not like, you know, some angel or divine being or whatever to come and rescue them. They were looking for a person. This is why like, you know, John the Baptist sends some of his disciples and says, are you the one we're looking for? Because they knew they were looking for a human, a person that God was going to send a person in the flesh as the Messiah. And so they would have had this in mind 
as Jesus was using this term for himself. Now, in identifying himself in this way, Jesus is very intentionally equating himself with this one luck of a son of man from Daniel 7 and all the implications that go with it. If you keep reading in that passage, you know there's more, but the fact that he is from God and of God and ushered into his presence and given a kingdom that will not pass away. So, the, you know, these, these 80-ish times in the gospel that he refers to himself this way, that it just speaks about all sorts of different things, but there's three particular times where Jesus uses the Son of Man phrase and it has a unique, or the title, and it has a unique phrase to go with it. And that phrase is, the Son of Man came. And this should grab our attention because this phrase is getting ready to tell us something about why this God-man, this person who will be before the Ancient of Days and receive this kingdom, why, why is he on earth? Why is he here? What's he doing? So let's look at those three real quick. One of these is spoken in the context of, remember when Jesus had uh, dinner with Zacchaeus, the tax collector? So Jesus was going through town and Zacchaeus really wants to get a glimpse of Jesus, but he was the guy who was too short to see anything over the crowd. So he climbs up the fig tree and as Jesus you know, comes by, uh, Jesus points him out, calls him down and basically invites himself over to his house. He says, I'm coming to have dinner with you tonight, Zacchaeus. And on the spot, Zacchaeus is convicted of all of his greed and all of his dishonesty. And right there, he repents and promises to pay restitution to all these people that he's cheating. Four times what he took from them to begin with. And so it's in the context of this dinner after this happens that Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house because this man too, meaning Zacchaeus, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So that's one of his main reasons he came, to seek and save the lost. That's from Luke 19, by the way. If I don't know, you make notes or want to look it up. The next example is when Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem and he's with his disciples, James and John. And remember James and John, weren't they fun sometimes? Like they kind of stuck their foot in their mouth. And this is the moment where they're arguing, trying to get Jesus to give them the positions on his left and right in his kingdom. Like, like I kind of sneak away from the other disciples like, hey, Jesus, so when you get to your kingdom, can we have those seats right next to you on the left and right? You know, and Jesus is like, oh, bless your heart. You know, Jesus said, bless your heart, right? <laughs> bless your heart. Look, that those places are prepared for certain people and it's not mine to give. Those places are prepared for those. And so Jesus wraps up this conversation by saying this. This is how he ends this. He says, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's the second one. And the last of those three phrases, the son of man came is this. Jesus is preaching all around Galilee, you know, talking to the crowds. Um, this was the bit where John the Baptist's disciples had said, you know, are you the one or whatever? And, and then Jesus kind of goes into this bit of a discussion about John the Baptist and his purpose and who he is and all that. And then he says this, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. And they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Well, yes, he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. That's from Matthew 11. So we have these three unique statements, just three, where it says the Son of Man came. He came to seek and save the lost. 
He came to serve, not be served, and give his life as a ransom. And he came eating and drinking. Now, you may notice that two of these statements are why statements. They're statements of Jesus' mission and purpose, what he came to do. But the third one <laughs> is a statement of how. It's his method in the way that he came to do those first two things he came to do. The, the how of how he showed up on this earth to do his mission, eating and drinking. Not like riding in on a white horse, not as a political authority, you know, with this powerful political approach like his followers or those looking for the Messiah would have expected. Came eating and drinking, going about his mission in a very, very relational, interpersonal, even intimate at times way. Reclining at tables, eating, drinking what he was being served at someone else's house, having meals, lots and lots of meals. He, y y Jesus is always coming or going from a meal, right? And sitting down and breaking bread with all sorts of people in all sorts of homes, in all sorts of ways. You know, Jesus got himself in a whole lot of trouble for the meals that he ate. He did. Where he ate them and who he ate them with got him in a lot of hot water. That dinner at Zacchaeus' house is one of those examples, if you remember. The moment that Jesus said, I'm coming to your house to eat dinner, Zacchaeus, the whole crowd that was gathered there, and remember, this was a crowd, because Zacchaeus, that's why he had to climb the fig tree. He couldn't see over the crowd. The whole crowd immediately began to judge Jesus and say, wait a minute, this guy's claiming to be the Messiah, but he's going to go eat at the house of a sinner? That can't be right. Surely the Messiah doesn't associate with sinners. Surely he doesn't go into a sinner's house to do this. And then there's a very similar story in Luke 5. That's the next chunk of text we're going to read together if you want to go ahead and start flipping there. But this is early on in Luke 5, early on in Jesus' ministry, where he's still calling his disciples. He's still gathering the 12 to himself, these guys that he's going to personally invest in and mentor and, and take along and teach how to do this stuff. And in Luke 5, 27, here's what happens. You should have had plenty of time to get your scriptures out by now. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi. Now, he's called Levi in two of the Gospels and Matthew in his own. Um, so it's the same person. Sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, so he overhears them talking, and he says, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Now, I want to read this for you um, in a different gospel and different translation because I think there's a one more chunk. I, I just really like that difference, you know, for us to really consider what's happening here. So I'm going to read this. So that was from Luke. I'm going to read the same story to you out of Matthew 9, Matthew's own gospel um, from the Passion Translation. It's not up here, but you can just listen. As Jesus left Capernaum, he came upon a tax collecting station where a Jewish man named Matthew was collecting taxes for the Romans. Come, follow me, Jesus said to him. Immediately, Matthew jumped up and began to follow Jesus. 
Jesus went to Matthew's house and made himself at home. <laughs> I just love that picture. Like, I'm here, Matthew. Many other tax collectors and outcasts of society were invited to eat with Jesus and his disciples. When those known as the Pharisees saw what was happening, they were indignant and they kept asking Jesus' disciples, why would your master dine with such lowlifes? When Jesus overheard this, he spoke up and said, healthy people don't need to see a doctor. When Jesus, excuse me, uh, don't need to see a doctor, but the sick will go for treatment. Then he added, now you should go and study the meaning of the verse, I want you to show mercy, not just offer me a sacrifice. For I have come to invite the outcasts of society and sinners, not those who think that they are already on the right path. Ouch. Now, it's really important to remember the type of culture they're living in at this time, right? We really need that context. Jewish purity laws were and still are very, very strict, okay? They had certain ways that everything needed to be prepared. You know, modern day, like traditional, like really strict Jewish homes will have two kitchens. So things that aren't supposed to touch, don't touch, okay? Very strict. There were things had to be prepared a very certain way. Um, certain foods were are totally prohibited. Um, you know, you actually had to prepare yourself for a meal by washing ceremonially a certain way and preparing yourself to eat this meal to make sure that you were clean as you approach this meal. And all of these requirements, if you think about it, very seriously limited who you could actually eat a meal with who you could enjoy this type of an occasion with, who you could invite to your table. So not only did these laws keep Jews from eating with Gentiles, they kept like the poor from eating with the rich. The rich pushed the poor out. Because the poor didn't have time or money or the facilities to do all of the ceremonial washing the way that it had to be done. So they were kept out of these circles. It kept the righteous from eating with those like unsavory types. And I'll say righteous that way too, right? The low lifes is that second translation puts it. It kept people separated because of how strict these laws were. Not only that, meals in this culture were highly significant. You know, it wasn't like running through Freddy's to grab a burger, no big deal. Like these were occasions you sit down and you engage with each other. And to share a meal with someone said something about your relationship with that person, about who you invited into your home at your table to sit and eat with and share these things with. Dining with someone meant that you had a unity, a bond with that person. These weren't just like casual potluck, whatevers. You know, this, this had meaning. And because of that, means, uh, meals could actually be a means to reconciliation. So if you invited like an estranged friend to your house, this would say something about you are offering or asking forgiveness for whatever's happened and that you're actually seeking to be reunited with that person in relationship. So this, the culture said a lot about what a meal meant. And so for all of these reasons, these Pharisees, these religious types were super upset about the kind of people that Jesus, this Messiah figure saying he's the son of man, the people he's actually sitting down to eat with. Like, what is he doing, right? He's dining with sinners and tax collectors, and they're just the worst of the worst. Why would he do this? They were traitors, these tax collectors, they turned on their own people and, and been deceitful. They were working for the oppressor Rome. Like you just couldn't get any worse than that. I was actually trying to think of a, a modern day example 
that would kind of illustrate like how despised these tax collectors were and I had a really hard time coming up with anything. The only thing that I could really think of, and it's not an exact fit, but it's like, imagine the Ukrainian-Russian war right now. And imagine there's a Ukrainian that to get money off the top goes and like feeds the Russian invading army information to help them invade his own country. And he gets rich off of it. Imagine what a, what a slap in the face that is to his people. And that's how people felt about these tax collectors. They were completely betraying their people just to get money and to get rich. And so they had indeed gotten rich off of their greed and off of their dishonesty. And they, but the problem is they were also total social outcasts because of it. They had traded community for wealth. And the Romans didn't want them because they were Jewish and the Jews didn't want them because they were traitors. They were deceitful and greedy. So just a brief aside here, kind of at this moment, looking at the way that Jesus shows up here. You know, there's something really important to be said about our own outreach when we look and see how Jesus made himself at home with outcasts, with people not like him, with the poor. We, we need to consider this. He sat down and had meals with those who were not yet on the right path. He even says, That's, I haven't called those you of you who think you've got it right. I came to hang out with those who aren't on the right path yet. Those who are in the circumstance. Those who had not yet experienced a whole lot of sanctification and were cleaned up and nice and comfortable and easy to be around. And you'll notice that it's Matthew himself, once he was called by Jesus, who then turns around and does the inviting to invite all of his other tax collector outcast types and friends to host this banquet for Jesus. He's the one who hosted and said, I have received a great invitation. I'm going to invite the rest to come and partake in this. So Jesus extends an invitation to us to come to dine with him. And we, I think, are responsible to in turn, turn around and extend that invitation to others who don't yet know that welcome and that invitation, who don't know that Jesus wants to be with them. Amen. We're Pharisees if we don't. Take that seriously. If we aren't willing to be inconvenienced, to get dirty, to spend our time, to cross boundaries, some we may have actually had a hand in creating ourselves, we're not representing Jesus well because that's what Jesus did. He came eating and drinking with all these types, spending time with them. You know, kids who are still in here, listen, you know, it, it, if you're in school and you like see that kid that's like always by himself, maybe he wears the same clothes a couple of times a day. Um, maybe he sits at a table at lunch by himself. Maybe he's, you can just, you know the type I'm talking about. I don't have to sit here and describe this. You know exactly who I'm talking about. And you may even have someone in mind right now. But if you see those kids off by themselves, it is your responsibility to go to them, to welcome them, to talk to them, to either invite them to your table or join them at theirs so that they too can experience community and belonging and welcome. Because if we are more worried about what the popular kids at the table or the athletes or the plastics, they call them the plastics now, like the mean girls. If we're more worried about what those people are gonna think of us for doing that, we have a bigger problem. We're the Pharisees. People at work, same thing, wherever you're at. 
If you see someone outcast and leave them there, remember the story of the Good Samaritan? (laughs) We're the Pharisees. We're the ones who are choosing greed or self-pride over the way of Jesus. You know, Melissa's sermon two weeks ago, I I, I loved it. It was very challenging. I I hope it was for you too. But it was about ministering to our Samaria and what that might be for us. We've all got different stuff that we struggle with, right? Different people that we kind of keep at arm's length. And between her sermon two weeks ago and this example of seeing Matthew and Jesus and how Matthew invited his friends and all that, honestly, I don't know what else can be said to convince you that outreach has to be a core key part of who we are as Jesus's disciples. Um, You know, it, it... We've got to get outside these walls. We've got to get outside of our regular circles. We have to invest time and energy and prayer and love into those who are outcast, who are poor, who are still on the wrong path, who still smell bad, who still do things that we don't like to be around because that's how we welcome them to Jesus's table and say, he offered this for me and he has this for you too. And it is absolutely an essential part of our own spiritual hunger to do this to cultivate our own spiritual hunger. Look, I I know we lead busy lives. Trust me, like guys, I've been gone like pretty much all summer. I don't expect us to do everything, but we've got to engage. It's got to be at least high on our priority list to do these things. Because if we don't, our own discipleship is deficient. Inside of here, our discipleship grows squishy. (laughs) It's out there when we're putting these things to use that Jesus meets us. All right, anyway. So here's Jesus, the son of man, having a meal with these types. Jesus shows up to Matthew's house and worlds absolutely collide because he sort of figuratively removes that centerpiece that the Pharisees had set that was like pride and self-sufficiency and religiosity. And he throws that off and he smacks back down in its place the centerpiece of God's grace right in the middle of the table because the son of man came eating and drinking with those who weren't considered righteous. And so it's after this that all these religious leaders who were super offended by this began to start trying to figure out what to do with this problem of Jesus and his subversive grace. What are we gonna do with this guy? because he's making a mess. Essentially, guys, Jesus got himself killed in part because of who he ate and drank with, the way that he had his meals. Because you see, the hunger of the Pharisees was to be right, ethnically, theologically, religiously, you know, politically, all these different things. That was their hunger. But what does Jesus himself say that we should hunger for? Well, he tells us in Matthew 5, it says this. He's preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount. And he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be filled. They'll be satisfied. I mean, what this is really saying to us, guys, is that those who long to be actually made right and reconciled with God, they're going to be supremely happy because they're actually going to receive what they're asking for. 
They're the ones who are gonna get what they're craving. They're gonna get a banquet full of everything that they're longing for, more than they could possibly want. And Jesus says the good news is that we, the way that we get it isn't by being good enough and fixing ourselves and ceremonially cleansing and trying to do it all ourselves, but having to follow all those rules that they were used to. The way that we get it is by accepting his invitation and allowing him to do that. We're happy and we have beatitude. That's what the beatitudes mean, right? That we're happy, we're blessed when we recognize the fatal flaw of our own sinful nature and we also receive the good news of Jesus's invitation to give us his nature, to long to be made right with God because he will come in then and eat and drink with even us sinners to offer you that meal of reconciliation that will actually change your life and make you happy. The only thing that will. But unfortunately, not everyone that's invited to eat and drink with Jesus accepts the invitation, do they? There's a story, a parable about that in Matthew 22. We're not gonna read it together, but remember the, the parable of the wedding banquet? And he, he invites all these people to come. Nobody shows up. They all have better things to do. And so he says, go out and bring in whoever will come and shame on those who didn't because they're the ones who missed out, right? They basically decided, sorry, we've got better things to do and, and they're left out. And not even, here's the tricky part, not even everyone who actually shows up is hungry for what's being served. The Pharisees were there, they showed up. They were not interested in what Jesus was offering were they? They had it all figured out, or they thought they did. There's a story in Luke 13 about this, and he's, Jesus is asked about how many people are going to be saved, because people are starting to get real nervous. Well, who can actually, you know, who can actually attain this then? And here's his response, Luke 13, 24. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, yep, there's a time when it's too late. There's a time when the door is closed. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you came from. And then watch this. Then you will say, but we ate and drank with you. It also says, and you preached in our streets. They had a familiarity, like they knew who he was. Maybe they assumed that was enough. You know, maybe they assumed name and face recognition. They could pick him out of a line, right? Maybe they thought that was enough. But the reality is they weren't there to know Jesus, to engage in that relationship with him. Maybe they thought proximity would be sufficient and get them by, but it wasn't. Because the reality is Jesus is looking for those who with full humility hunger and thirst to be reconciled to him. That's why they're at the meal. They don't care what's on the table, they want Jesus. That's what he's looking for. And how many other things do we insert in the place of being made right with God, of being reconciled to him? You know, things like being comfortable, being safe, being liked, being successful, being attractive, being witty or funny or smart or having fun or even just our own dang legalism. <laughs> and we're like, yep, that'll do. 
That's what I'll have a good meal of today. But guys, those are false gospels. They are not what makes us happy. They are not what reconciles us. They're untrue good news. It's a bait and switch kind of meal because we are to hunger and thirst to be reconciled with God for righteousness. So Jesus came eating and drinking because these meals were his enacted grace. They were his grace on display, grace in action. The action of sitting down with these people was his grace on display. These meals were a form of welcome where Jesus sits down with sinners and the most important dish on the table is something of himself being offered to them. He says, here's what I offer you. Here's what I have. Do you want it? Is this what you're craving? Is this what you're longing for? You know, we talked about those laws. And in the old covenant, uncleanliness was what was spread, right? You had to wash and take care so that you didn't become unclean by accidentally interacting with something else that was unclean. But in this new covenant of grace that Jesus offers, he's dealt with that problem. We don't have to worry anymore about like accidentally becoming unclean by interacting with something else that's unclean because he's fulfilled the law. We don't have to worry about that. Instead, under this covenant of grace, it's his holiness that becomes contagious. He offers us him. So we can get down in the muck and the mire and with those who aren't already on the right path, who don't know Jesus and say, but he offers you this without having to worry about our own contamination. Thank God. All right. So remember that passage that we read uh, back at the beginning of Daniel 7, okay? There's four beasts, scary beasts, doing bad things, tearing stuff up, making a mess. We have the Ancient of Days, the one who is like a son of man, who is ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days. So keep that picture in mind that we read from Daniel chapter seven um, as we look at real quick how it is that Jesus brings all of this together. And I love this. This is, this is the kind of stuff I just love about scripture, like how it just, bam, and you see like the fulfillment of things. So in Matthew 26, pre- yes, I know, right? Yes, get excited! <laughs> Scripture is true, like it's fulfilled, yay! In Matthew 26, Jesus has been arrested. He's on trial. He's being accused. He's brought before the leaders, you know, and, and they're like slamming him with these questions, trying to interrogate him, and he's not biting. He's not taking the bait. He's not answering any of the questions. He's not defending himself, and this is kind of driving them nuts, because he's just cool, calm, and collected and not defending himself and just there waiting for what the Father's gonna do. So in Matthew 26, verses 62 through 64, this is what it says. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God tell us if you are the Messiah. He's like, enough of this son of man stuff. Say it outright. Say what you mean. Are you the Messiah or are you not? Are you the son of God? You have said so, Jesus replied. Oh, can't you just feel their irritation? But then Jesus says, but I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Do you see the parallel there? 
I've intentionally put Matthew 26 and Daniel 7 up next to each other. Daniel's vision of this one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven, ushered into the presence of the ancient of days. Jesus stands before his accusers knowing he's going to die. That's the next thing coming. He's going to the cross and here he stands describing the scene from Daniel's prophetic vision. But So now we can see clearly, yes, Jesus is this son of man. He is the one who will be brought into the presence of the Ancient of Days, the Mighty One, coming on the clouds of heaven, eating and drinking God in the flesh, come to earth to spend time with us sinners at a table of grace and give us a taste of an everlasting kingdom, his dominion that will never fail. He has all authority for all time and we are invited into that and we get a taste from Jesus in the flesh, the Son of Man, come from the Father, of the Father, to welcome us into that kingdom. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that righteousness because they're going to be satisfied. They're going to get it. They're going to inherit that everlasting kingdom. What better news? I love how Jesus does this, just stands right in the crowd and says, yep, from now on, you're going to see it. From now on, you're going to see this Messiah, the Son of Man, seated in the Mighty One's presence, coming on the clouds of heaven. The crowd would not have missed this. Mm -hmm. They would have known this reference. They would have known what Jesus was saying. Mm 